Well, good morning. Invite you to open up your scriptures to the book of Joel in the Old Testament with me. And if you're using one of the Bibles provided for you, that'll be on page 760, which is a great help for the minor prophets, <laughs> as sometimes they're harder to, to find. Uh, you're turning to a, a small but potent book, Joel. His name means Yahweh is God. And you're going to see through this that that is exactly uh, what God is going to demonstrate to the people. The book contains only three chapters, uh, which doesn't necessarily make it easier to preach in one sermon. Um, but what we want to do is we want to see God's glory in this book as Joel not only uh, foretells preaching, but he foretells pro prophetical events that have not happened yet. And what Joel saw and what he foresaw should awaken us. It really is the intention of this prophecy. Uh, you'll notice that uh, this is really where the, uh, Joel, even though Obadiah talks about the day of the Lord, Joel is the first one to actually start explaining it. And this becomes one of those key concepts where uh, it's already happened, but it's not yet fully happened. And so we're going to look at that. And so the prophet Joel uh, talking about the day of the Lord. Here's the outline. And we're going to keep this up for you just so you can track and follow since we're going through the entire book. Uh, but the day of the Lord in judgment. And of course, that is going to be followed by a call to lament and repent. And then the day of the Lord in grace. And you will see three promises, one of salvation, one of justice, which we, we, we really do long for even today, and then a promise of restoration. And you'll notice, even by looking at the outline, the flow of thought, the gospel flow of thought, thought throughout this book, you have uh, lamentation or weeping over sin. Uh, you have repentance from sin. You have the salvation or the forgiveness of sin and then a restored relationship with God because justice was enacted in Christ. And if not in Christ, it will be enacted upon the nations who have rejected the Son. Okay, so that's the gospel flow of thought through the book of Joel. Uh, if you want a big idea, um, as we enter into this, the day of the Lord, God's judgment, serves as incentive for a lifestyle of repentance and faith. What do we mean by a lifestyle of repentance and faith? Right, all our sins are forgiven. And yet when the disciples, believing men, asked Jesus how they should pray, he said... Um, that you forgive others their trespasses as your Father in heaven has forgiven you, right? And then you pray, uh, forgive us our trespasses. Um, and so this is a lifestyle of turning to the Lord. Even this last week, we've sinned. We either, we've either sinned in attitude or in action or in our words or in our thoughts or in our motives against God. And against one another. And Joel is going to just hold that up before us and remind of this, remind us of this, not so that we despair, but so that we return to God. And that's going to be the theme. Um, even as sinful people, even as though, even though we have right, the righteousness of Christ in us, uh, this day of the Lord, this impending judgment of God uh, is an incentive for a lifestyle of repentance and faith. And so the coming day of the Lord, as we're going to see in the book of Joel, should affect our life right now. 
February 19, 2017. And so let's look into this. Let's pray first. God, thank you that we can gather in your name because of what you did through your son, his cross work. And for those who truly believe, you have told us our sins are forgiven. And yet, Lord, we realize we still in our depravity persist in sin at times. And I pray that we would behold your glory in this book. Preaching by necessity is your truth through personality. And I pray that you would use that today so that we would behold your glory. And when needed, that we would return and we would weep so that we could find joy in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Look at Joel 1 1. We don't know much about Joel. We know he is the son of Pethuel, uh, but we really don't know even the time that he ministered. There are no kings mentioned. Some uh, think that that's because he ministered during the time of Athaliah or the time when one of her sons who was spared, uh, even though she had killed her grandchildren, that one of the sons who was spared, that there was a time when the priest was ruling. Uh, but we really don't have a very clear understanding of the time period. What we do know is Joel is very familiar with Judah, with Jerusalem, and with the worship in Jerusalem, perhaps even a priest himself. And so, verse 1, the word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Now, Joel's prophecy is going to be motivated by a historical occurrence. And you're going to see this in several places in the first chapter and in part of the second chapter. And that historical occurrence was a devastating plague of locusts. Joel's actually going to use this plague, this this disaster, and he's going to turn the people's attention to it as an evidence that a greater day of judgment and devastation is coming. It is a comprehensive destruction. Look at verse 4 of chapter 1. Joel either uh, refers to four different stages of the locust or four different kinds of locust. Either way, it is a complete destruction of the land. Look at verse 4. What the locust swarm has left, the great locusts have eaten. What the great locusts have left, the young locusts have eaten. What the young locusts have left, other locusts have eaten. Now look at chapter 2, verse 3. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, okay, before these locusts, before God's ordained army through these creatures, but behind them a desolate wilderness and nothing escapes them. It is a comprehensive destruction, but it is also a God-ordained devastation. Look at chapter 2, verse 11. The Lord utters His voice before His army, and His host is exceedingly great. He that executes His word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome who can endure it? When we get a glimpse and when we understand that Joel is actually crediting to God the devastation through the locusts, this is, if we're honest, this is an aspect to God we're not completely comfortable with, is it? 
He actually ordains these types of events. Tsunamis and hurricanes and famine and a plague of locusts. And Joel calls out several groups of people. Go back to chapter 1. He's going to call out to the elders. These are not the spiritual elders like we might refer to as the pastors in the church. These are the men in their community, the, the leaders of their homes. And he's going to refer to this plague of locusts. And look at verse 2. He's going to call out to the elders. Hear this, you elders. Listen, all who live in the land. Has anything like this ever happened in your days or in the days of your forefathers? Tell it to your children and let your children tell it to their children and their children to the next generation. This is what Joel is saying. Okay, this devastation where these locusts came and, and basically enacted their own scorched earth policy. Don't forget this. Tell it to your children and your children's children. But the first group of people he calls out, interestingly enough, are drunkards. Look at verse 5. He says, awake, you drunkards, and weep, and wail, all you drinkers of wine. The destruction of the vines that the locusts had eaten have cut off their source of escape, their source even of delight. And they are told to weep and to wail. In verse 8, another group of people, all people should weep like a young lady whose fiance has died. Put on sackcloth. And grieve. He talks to the farmers in verse 11. Be ashamed, O tillers of the soil. Wail, O vine dressers. For, and notice the comprehensiveness of the destruction again. For the wheat and the barley, because of the harvest of the field, has perished. The vine dries up. The fig tree languishes. Pomegranate, palm, and apple. All the trees of the field are dried up. And why did God create those things. We sang all creatures of our God and King. We, we, we sang about another creation song across the lands. Why does God create what we see? Why didn't he just create black and white or all food to taste like cream of wheat? Right? Why does he do that? So we delight in him, right? Our delight in those created things expresses his glory. And that's what he says after he talks about all these drying up. Look what he says. And gladness dries up. When the food and the vine dry up, gladness dries up with it. Then he calls out to the priests in verse 13 and 14. And here's what the spiritual leaders are called to do. Look at verse 13. Put on sackcloth and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Go in, pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God, because grain offering and jerink offering are withheld from the house of your God. They can't even offer the appropriate sacrifices at this point because the land has been devastated. Look at verse 14. Look at what these holy men are called to do. Declare a holy fast. Call a sacred assembly. Summon the elders and all who live in the land of the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Alas, for that day, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come like destruction from the Almighty. So what is our responsibility? I mean, just in chapter one where he's calling out 
uh, all peoples and elders and drunkards and farmers and priests. And he's calling them to grieve and to mourn over the sin and over the destruction that their sin has brought upon the land. What is our responsibility as we read such a seeming remote text? We just came through the book of First Peter together and he speaks of the church as being a holy priesthood. He speaks of us being a royal priesthood. He talks about a time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? He's talking about judgment for those of us, a kingdom of priests who have the gospel. And then like he addresses the priests in Joel 1, Peter quickly then moves and he talks about the elders. And he deals with the elders first. The spiritual leaders of his church. Here's Joel's call to action. Awake. Lament. Be ashamed. Lament and wail and pass the night in sackcloth. Consecrate a fast and call a solemn assembly and cry out to the Lord. And for some of us, we think that is such a foreign concept. And partly because we do enjoy the blessings of God every single day, don't we? I mean, our land has not been devastated today. We enjoy the blessings of God this morning. I mean, we had all different manner. If we would just go through and find out what everyone drank and ate already just this morning. I mean, we are enjoying the blessings of God. So this almost seems foreign to us. Why should we even care? Well, because of the plague of locusts and other tsunamis, hurricanes, famine, economic recessions, oppressive leaders give a glimpse of something that's coming. That's why. All the way back when we were told, when they were told, tell your children, your children's children and their children about this locust plague, it is because there is something coming. And Joel's going to address that. In this book, look at verse 15. Alas, this is the first of five references to the day of the Lord. Look at verse chapter 1, verse 15. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and as destruction from the Almighty, it comes. Though the locusts have devoured, there is a more terrifying day of the Lord just ahead. Now, Joel, perhaps a priest himself, leads in Joel chapter 1, verse 19 in an exemplary response. I'm just going to read to you five words. Six words. Joel 1, verse 19. To you, O Lord, I call. That is an appropriate response to devastation. And he actually there in that prayer confesses simply that the earth is bare. It's been destroyed. After Joel prays, we find the second of five references to the day of the Lord in Joel. Look at Joel chapter two, verse one. He says, blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. Now, he talks about the plague of locusts as the day of the Lord's judgment. But now he's saying there's another day coming and it's near. Look at verse 2. 
A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. These are heavy verses. That's why people kind of um, humorously refer to them as the meaner prophets. And as a result, we tend to avoid them. Right? When we're, when we're already heavy-hearted, people don't typically turn to Joel. Right? They turn to the Psalms, certain Psalms, or to the Gospels. But rarely are you going to go to Joel chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, about a day that is looming, and it's coming near, and it's a day of darkness and gloom. Look at verse 11, Joel chapter 2, verse 11. This is the third of five references to this day. For the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. And some of you in your translations, it says terrible. That's what the word means. It is an awesome, terrible day. And here's a question. Who can endure it? Verse 11. So that brings us really to the next section. And we're left with a question that Joel gives to us. Who can endure this? And we need to ask ourselves that question. Is there any hope of escape? From this end time judgment, from this day that is looming nearer and nearer, is there any hope of escape? Is there any way to return and enjoy God's blessing? And the answer, which is good news, is yes. So we move to our next section, the call to repent. This is the way of return. Look at Joel chapter 2, verse 12. And I hope you can hear the good news in this because he's just taught me the land is bare. The people are suffering. He's called out all these different categories of people. He's just warned them about this dark and terrible day. And look at chapter two, verse 12. Yet even now. Did you get that? Even now, declares the Lord. Return to me with all your heart. Okay, what does that look like? How do we return to God? With fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. I mean, Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount says, Blessed are those that mourn. Right? The idea is that blessed are those who mourn over their sin. And rend your hearts and not your garments. God is not interested now in an external display of brokenness. God wants the heart to be rend, rended. Return to the Lord your God. for And here's why. Rend your hearts and not your garments. Verse 13. Return to the Lord your God. Second time he said this. Here's why. Though he is fearful and almighty. And he is Yahweh. Return to the Lord your God. For he is gracious. And merciful. Slow to anger. And abounding in steadfast love. And he relents over disaster. So here's the urgency. Now return. Reverse your direction and go back to him with your with all your heart. Say, what what does he mean by that? What does he mean with an undivided heart? What is our heart? Okay, the Hebrew idea for heart is your mind, your will and your emotion. God wants you to have an intellectual illumination as, as Joel's name means. Yahweh is God. We intellectually Get that. And then your volition, your will, you actually determine, you make a deliberate decision to turn back to him. He's illumined your understanding and now you you willfully turn to him. But what about emotion? 
Because that's also an aspect of our heart. And that's where the weeping and the lamenting, which God will then turn to delight, but He wants an undivided heart turning back to Him. He doesn't want us to just say the right things or just act out the right cadences. He wants a heart that is affected intellectually and emotionally and volitionally in a turning back to Him. There's an urgency, but there's also a hope. Like in Hosea, the way of escape is repentance. So Yahweh is the one allowing the destruction, yet He is also their only hope for safety and the source of renewed blessing. Remember we looked at Hosea? He even talked about this distress coming upon the land. But why did God bring distress? So that the people would, they would return. Who can endure God's wrath? And already you're seeing the promise of a deliverer, rescuer, whose name is Jesus Christ. Who through His sacrificial death did not simply deflect God's wrath for a later time, but on the cross He absorbed it. He took it for you. So there is one who can endure God's wrath. But that's why we should respond. Again, look at verse 2.13. You can return to Him because God is gracious. He shows favor to the undeserving. Because He is merciful. He has compassion at the sight of pitifulness. He is slow to anger. Very interesting uh, picture here. That, That actually means long of nostrils. So He's not... There's an idea in anger that's snorting. Right? These aren't the people that laugh and snort. This is that an actual, there's a, there's, there's such a passion that it's, and he's long of nostrils. You can return to God because he is slow to anger. He is abounding in steadfast love. He overflows with loyal and unfailing love. And God is the one who will relent from sending disaster. So Joel repeats what he did in 1 verse 14 and 2 1. Look at verse 15 of chapter 2. He's going to say this again. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the people. Consecrate the congregation. Assemble the elders. Gather the children, even nursing infants. He's even saying that the bridegroom should come out of his place and uh, the bride come out of her place, which means everything gets put on hold. Even weddings. Because what is happening is extremely serious. Look at verse 12. You're going to hear this again. Yet, even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. So when do we turn back? As God's people, as as a congregation... How do we know when God is calling us to do this? Even now, return. Well, if we're not seeking God and His Word regularly, we need to turn back. If we're not loving each other as Christ loved us, we need to turn back. If we're caught in secret sin, Pornography or emotional adultery or visual idolatry, we need to turn back. 
If we have zero affection for God and our greatest delights are plastic or audio and video, we need to turn back. If we are not praying together and for one another, we need to turn. If we're not making a difference in this community as salt and light, as witnesses, we need to turn back. If we allow a culture of evil speaking and suspicion to exist among us, or if jealousy and gossip permeates this congregation, even now, turn. And if we are only concerned about ourselves and our world, then we are not loving our neighbor as ourselves, and we need to turn back. Joel says, return to the Lord your God. For He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and He relents over disaster. This is how Paul's going to say it in the New Testament, because this is what we need to realize. It is the goodness of God, not, not necessarily just as the distress He can create or the devastation He brings to our life or to our land, but it's actually His goodness that should lead us back to repentance. Paul says in Romans 2.13, Return to the Lord your God. Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience? All of those are true of God, aren't they? He is kind and He forbears and He's patient, not knowing that God's kindness, listen to this, is meant to lead you to repentance. Joel's call to repentance is now followed by a promise of salvation. So you're going to see the day of the Lord now in grace. Look at the promise of salvation. Look at Joel chapter 2 verse 18. Because Joel is concerned that the nations will look onto God's people, Israel, and they will mock. Or they'll look down to Judah, southern Israel, and they will mock his name. So now, look at what prompts God. Look at chapter 2 verse 18. Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. The Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I am sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied. And I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. Look at chapter 2, verse 27. Then you will know that I am in Israel, that I am the Lord your God. That's what God is doing. He's causing His people to return to Him, and He's causing the fame of His name to be great throughout the world. So, so here's what we're going to start to see as, as it shifts into the day of the Lord with a promise of salvation and justice and a promise of restoration. For those who rebel against Yahweh, the day of the Lord is a time of reckoning and judgment. It is dark. It is terrifying. But for those who repent and gladly submit to Him, those who call out to Him, Lord, it is a day of mercy and joy. And did you hear that? Because what you're going to see in here is, a, a, in just a few minutes, is he's going to repeat something that we're, we're more used to seeing in Romans and Acts. For whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Okay, that's here in the book of Joel, in the midst of terrifying judgments. Look at Joel chapter 2, verse 28 to 31. And this is going to be a good example of how some prophecies in the Old Testament are fulfilled in multiple stages. And we're going to look at this because this is a promise of salvation. Look at verse 28. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit. So this has not yet happened for Joel. This is future. 
I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. And he's going to continue into the next thought, but these are separated thoughts. They're two different phases. Look at verse 30. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And now you move into another part of this, verse 32, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, when we, well, from my, from my view, I can't I even see Mount Evans from here. This is just right there is Mount Evans. And when you look and you see the peaks, it's like what the prophets would see as God was inspiring them to foretell events. And you might see Mount Evans, and we can look just in one glance down there at Long's Peak, okay? And they look fairly close, okay? Very clear. But if you were to actually get in a car and start heading there, either via I-70 or 285, you're going to find out there's a lot of valleys in between, right? I mean, I, I, you know, there's Starbucks up there. You can't see it from here. But right off I-70, there's McDonald's. And there are ranches. There's even off 285, right before you turn on the Guanala Pass, this, this creepy kind of beef jerky place. Okay, you can't see that from here, uh, but it's all in there. That's like life. So Joel the prophet sees these peaks, these prophetic peaks. But when you actually start living out life between the peaks, you're going to see there's a lot of meandering roads and back roads and wildlife and people. So he sees these events. There's going to be an outpouring of the Spirit. And then the Moon's going to turn blood red and darkness is going to fall. He sees these things in close proximity, but they're actually separated with all these valleys in between. The first mountain that Joel talks about in Joel 2 verse 28 is the outpouring of God's Holy Spirit. We know this happened at Pentecost, in part at least, Because hundreds of years after Joel's prophecy in Acts 2, believers were, quote, filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues. Okay, these were known languages that they had not learned before. And everybody, all the pilgrims who had gathered together at Jerusalem, heard the great things of God in their own language. It's an incredible miracle. The people listening were amazed and they asked in Acts 2.12, what does this mean? And Peter gives the astonishing answer in Acts 2, verse 16. Listen to what he says. This is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. That's what he says. So that first prophetic peak, this outpouring of God's Spirit, this amazing miracle of tongues, and everyone in their own tribe and language are hearing, they're hearing the gospel in his own dialect. And they're amazed and they're like, what can this possibly mean? And Peter says, this is what Joel was talking about. And then he quotes Joel chapter 2, verses 28 to 32, where the fourth of five references to the day of the Lord is. The second mountain peak, however, is one that we haven't reached yet. We're still on those back roads and in those valleys. And that's the description of 
if you would, a recreation of the cosmos or a judgment even upon creation, right? Romans says that even creation groans waiting for adoption. And you have this, the cosmos and God's creation that is starting to give a sign that that other mountain peak is coming into view. This is what he says in Joel 2, verse 30. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Listen to what Peter says in Acts chapter 2, verse 19 and 20. He recognizes that the day of the Lord, the outpouring of the Spirit has been fulfilled. But then Peter goes on to say, and I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. Now connected to all this and contingent upon each other, look at Joel 2, verse 32. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there shall be those who escape. As the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. Paul quotes this in Romans ten thirteen, talking about the Jewish people and a remnant of these people that would be saved. And he says, and we quote this, okay, and there, there, there's, there may be, there's a broader application that, yes, all who confess will be saved, but actually Paul is looking towards his own people, Israel, and he says in Romans ten thirteen. That for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And Peter preaching says this in Acts 2, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Okay, so you have Joel now kind of being brought into Acts and Romans. So the day of the Lord is both already and not yet. That's a common way of explaining this. It's already happened, but it's not yet completely fulfilled. But it will find completion. Now look at the promise of justice. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. In those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, which means Yahweh has judged. So God is going to gather the nations in this one area for judgment. Now, Joel's already called the locust plague the day of the Lord. And now the outpouring of God's spirit in Acts 2 is the day of the Lord. But now there is this promise of justice, this great and terrifying day of the Lord, which we're still moving towards. Look at verse 2. Joel 3, verse 2. I will gather all nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, and I will enter into judgment with them there. On behalf of my people and my heritage, Israel, because they have scattered them among the nations and have divided up my land. And these are the covenant promises all the way back in the Old Testament. And have cast lots for my people. What does that mean? In order to take them as slaves. And have traded a boy for a prostitute and have sold a girl for wine and have drunk it. And the nations thought God didn't see. The nations thought God was impotent. The nations thought God was not just. So they no longer feared him. And his own people didn't fear him. 
But folks, God has not missed a single unjust action. And He is about to rise and take action. He gathers the nations. Look at verse 11, Joel chapter 3. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations. There's the divine invitation. And gather yourselves there. And that is where the judgment of the nations will happen. Now look at chapter 3, verse 14, where the fifth and final reference to the day of the Lord appears. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. Here's a picture of the nations gathered in the valley of Jehoshaphat where they are about to be judged. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. Verse 15, the sun and the moon are darkened and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem and the heavens and the earth quake. But the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. So you shall know that I am the Lord, your God, who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain. Judgment leads to the knowledge of God. Joel means Yahweh is God. Jehoshaphat means Yahweh has judged. These are the signs, the signs that Joel is talking about and the signs that Peter talks about in Acts chapter 2 precede the coming eschatological day of the Lord. Let me read to you what Jesus taught. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew, Matthew 24. Jesus taught his disciples in the Olivet Discourse he said, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. See, that's what it's all culminating towards. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And that is then the judgment of the nations. That is the day of the Lord. Yes, it's already, it's already happened, but it hasn't fully happened. And that's where we're moving. So look at the promise, the final promise, the last couple of verses of Joel 3, the promise of restoration. The earthly location of God's presence will be at Jerusalem. He roars. He has no rival. And then the closing verses of the book promise how Judah will be restored in, in its relationship with God. And we see this in chapter 3, verse 18. We actually, if you walk into the church, you'll see there's a stone by our little water fountain. And Joel 3.18 is the verse on that rock. Uh, Joel 3.18 says, And in that day the mountains shall drip sweet wine. Well, we don't have that part on our rock. Right? We only have water. Um, but... Here's what God's saying, right? The vine is dried up. The locusts have devoured everything. The day of the Lord is coming. But in that day, the mountains shall drip sweet wine and the hills shall flow with milk and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water and a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord. That's in Zion. That's in Jerusalem. A fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord and water the valley of Shittim, which means the valley of acacia trees. It's on the north, northern shores of the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea. It gives no life. It's got 34.2% salinity. 9.6 times saltier than the ocean. I was able to float in the water, but they warn you that you cannot get it in your eyes because of 
the saltiness of it, very buoyant. It gives no life. It's it's dead. So when he makes that geographical location, here's what we need to hear. Not just, oh, that's interesting. No, what's going to happen is this, this dead sea, which provides no life, is going to be totally restored. Part of God's creation is going to be running now with fresh water and the acacia trees. And and there's going to be wine coming out of the mountains. A complete renewal of the land of Israel. Listen, from death to life. Where right now, plants and animals cannot flourish. So here's what we're reminded of as we're going to move towards a time of corporate confession The Bible doesn't merely describe salvation negatively. I mean, it does. But it also it also presents it positively, negatively deliverance from God's judgment, but positively God restores. And he grants to us to have delight in him again. You'll see the contrast, verse 19, between desolation and restoration. And then the final verse, look at verse 21, the very last part. For the Lord dwells in Zion. So whether it is a living metaphor to serve as an illustration of the breaking of covenant, right? Gomer and Hosea, and that God is a faithful husband who shows loyal and unfailing love or whether it's a historical devastation, a plague of locusts, which show in part the day the Lord is coming as a warning that there is a greater and more terrifying day approaching. This is the weight of the scroll of the twelve, the minor prophets. Here's the burden of these books. The Lord's indignation against sin is real. And so is his mercy and restoration to those who, as Joel says, rend their hearts in repentance And cry out to the Lord, for whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be what? They will be saved. Joel asks, who can endure the day of the Lord? The answer is only God incarnate can absorb the wrath of God the Father. And if you are in Him, you are safe. And if you are not, you are not safe. But whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved because of Jesus Christ's sacrificial death for us. So how do we apply this? Well, visions of the future can be disturbing or they can be absolutely remote and have no effect on us. But what God's intention is through Joel and even through Revelation, the majority of that book, which has not yet happened, is to provide incentive for holy living, for us to return, for us to weep and mourn and lament and then to delight because we have turned from our sin. The day of the Lord serves as incentive for a lifestyle of repentance and faith. 